You're listening to Investigation Insiders by Integris Intelligence. Hello again, everyone. This is Farhad. Hope you are well. Thank you for tuning into Investigation Insiders. We have something very, very interesting for you uh, this time. Um, I guess before we get into that, let me introduce our guests and then we'll talk about what this uh, episode will be about. So anyone that's in the investigative business, they know that you can't house every type of skill set under your roof. Uh, so we oftentimes rely on partner organizations or subcontractors that help kind of fill the gaps where we need to fill them. Um, so our first guest is definitely in Integris's Rolodex, um, Sarah Nasir. Um, she's a managing partner and co-founder of Integrity One Solutions, which is also an investigative firm uh, that specializes in forensic accounting and regulatory compliance. Uh, she's got experience both in law enforcement and on the private sector. And you know her work, her professional work experience uh, spans 25 years to include. Uh, the New York City Business Integrity Commission, where she was the director of the Forensic Audit Unit, uh, the Manhattan DA's office, private sector accounting firms, and of course, where she got her start, a senior investigative auditor with the New York City Department of Investigation. Welcome, Sarah. Happy to have you with us today. How are you? Good. How are you? Thank you for having me. Uh, did did I miss anything there, or did did I capture everything uh, accurately? Yeah, there's another long list of other um, items, but you know this is good. You yeah. got you captured everything. Okay, excellent. Thank you. So we also have with us today, Mr. Barry Webney. Um, Barry is an experienced controller uh, and general manager. He currently has his own consulting firm, the Webney Consulting Group. He graduated uh, from the University of uh, Toledo in 1987, where he um, got an MBA. He rapidly climbed the corporate ladder while serving with several companies in various accounting management and technology roles. And here's where it gets interesting. Um, Barry is also a convicted felon. In fact, he was convicted twice for embezzling more than a million dollars each from his employers between 92 and 96, and then again between 2001 and 2006. In each case, he was sentenced to incarceration in federal prison. Thanks for joining us, Barry. How, how are you today? I'm great, thank you for having me. Absolutely, looking forward to uh, chatting with you both and um, getting into our discussion today. Um, so for everyone out there, we're, today will be part one of a two-part series where we talk to Barry and Sarah about the two sides of embezzlement, committing the crime and hopefully preventing the crime, if not detecting it when it happens. In part one, we're going to focus on the crime. Uh, Barry, can you talk to us about how you became a two-time convicted felon? Well, I, I will, and I, I appreciate you you having me today. 
Uh, I think that, uh, as you said before, I, I have my uh, undergraduate degree from Auburn University. Um, I have a, uh, and I, I got my MBA from the University of Toledo. Uh, I never, you know, I never thought that I would commit a crime and, and I, I wasn't born a felon, um, but I, uh, my first real job, I guess, out of MBA school was with a company in Cleveland, Ohio, as a controller. I moved my family to Cleveland at the time, uh, two daughters and my wife, and um, obviously, um, I was living on the edge. Um, I, I've never been a, a, I've never been a big drinker. I've never used drugs in my life. I'm not a gambler. Uh, I just, I was strapped for cash as everybody is, um, you know, right after you get married and moved my family to Cleveland, got a comp, uh, got this job as a controller, a uh, small company, less than a hundred employees, um, maybe, $12 million a year in sales and uh, went to work uh, immediately, was felt the financial pressure of my home. Uh, I was uh, I was in charge of accounts payable, paying the bills with the company. I was in charge of payroll for salaried employees. I was in charge of accounts receivable and I was also paid a bonus for the financial performance of the company. So I was also um, put the financial statements together on a monthly basis. And probably a month after I started um, in Cleveland, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was two months behind on my car payment and uh, the financial pressure was uh, pretty, pretty heavy. And uh, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to try and make a loan from the company. I'm not going to say anything to anybody, but I'm going to I'm going to borrow, you know, four thousand to five thousand dollars. I'm going to write myself a check and see what happens. Uh, if I get caught, uh, if my boss catches me, I'll say I, you know, I don't know what happened. That was a mistake, um, and I felt that I could recover from that and retain my job if if it was discovered. Uh, I wrote myself a check for the forty-five hundred dollars and. Uh, back then, we didn't have the internet, so uh, I called the bank, uh, the company's bank, to make sure that the check had cleared, and that was a couple days after I deposited the check in my account, and sure enough, the check was cleared, check cleared the bank, $4,500 in my account, paid some bills, was happy, and uh, I figured, well, nobody's going to, nobody's going to catch it now, and uh I figured if I destroyed the check, that that would solve all my problems. I didn't realize that banks take uh, copies of checks and uh, put the check through the shredder. When the bank statement came through at the end of the month, uh, I grabbed it. I reconciled the bank statement and made an adjustment to the general ledger for $4,500 and everything was good to go. And like many addictions and i'm not a i'm not an expert on addictions but once you do something the first time it gets easier the second time and a month after that three weeks after that i decided to do it again 
And that $4,500 turned into about $20,000 a month. And it, it, it was like, just exactly like an addiction. Once you start, uh, you can't stop. And I, I hear this a lot from, from people, uh, victims and, and, you know, that they can't control themselves. And that's pretty much the situation I was in. And over, over a four year period, it amounted to about a million two hundred fifty thousand dollars and uh, nobody in the company really suspected anything. Um, every time I was asked, why are the financial statements? Why, why are the assets or live or I'm sorry, accruals for the company growing so much? I had an easy answer for him. I was kind of the yes man with the company. I told them what they wanted to hear. And everybody trusted Barry. Boy, I remember we did have an audit every year. We had a local accounting firm come in and do an audit. And uh, that was that was a time that I sweated things out because I was worried that they were going to uncover the crime. But but as Sarah will tell you, um, roughly four percent of the time during an audit, uh, crimes are discovered embezzlement crimes if it's going on will be discovered so uh, i didn't realize that at the time but i sweated through each audit every year and it was it was tough um but the auditors never picked it up they're not paid to pick it up unless they come across something that uh that forewarns that there's fraud going on so after four years the crime was discovered um i was put on paid leave, let go. And they had, uh, I, I think they did the investigation themselves and they came up with a million two fifty. And I remember being at home uh, in the summer spring of 1996 and two gentlemen came to the door on a Friday afternoon and knocked on the door. My wife answered, the uh, the door and they said is uh, is your husband around we'd like to talk to him and they said uh, we're insurance agents and uh, I walked over and one of the one of the gentlemen took me aside and said Mr. Webney we're with the FBI is there some place we can go to talk and at that point the the load of the world had kind of come off my shoulders because I knew that the waiting was over and I didn't have to look over my shoulder anymore. And uh, I went down into, I had an office in the basement. They took, uh, I took them down to my office. They already knew what had happened. Uh, they already knew the truth and I wasn't gonna lie to them. And I told them everything that they knew. And um, basically they told me, don't call us, we'll call you. And uh, within six months, I had uh, gone before the judge. Um, and was sentenced to, uh, I think it was 33 months, between 30 and 36 months in federal prison. I was sentenced to 33 months in federal prison. Um, they had a program at that time back in the 1990s uh, called the Intensive Confinement Center, the ICC. It was a six month boot camp program for first time nonviolent criminals. And the judge recommended me to that program. The Bureau of Prisons agreed, and I was allowed to do my 
33-month sentence in six months and go home to my family. Um, but to be honest with you, it was too fast. I didn't, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't learn my lesson. Uh, I was released in 1997, January of 1997, went back to my wife and family and uh, got a job selling cars in Toledo, worked for a car dealership for about three years. And in 2001, I thought to myself, boy, I, you know, I never thought about whether I'm going to commit this crime again or not. It, that never I never really asked myself, you know, what if I'm in the same, a same position? Would I do the same thing? That, that never crossed my mind. And I think that a lot of that had to do with the time that I was away. Um, six months is a short period of time to think about what puts you in that position. And uh, there was an ad in the paper in 2001 for a an accountant for a small company in Toledo, Ohio, and I put my application in, um, went to an interview, and was hired immediately. No background check, no nothing. Uh, and same position, I uh, was in charge of the accounts payable, I was in charge of the accounts receivable, the general ledger, and the monthly financial statements. And it didn't take me more than a month or two to get back into the old swing of things. And uh, I was experiencing financial difficulties at home and I tested the water with a $4,000 check and that $4,000 check over eventually turned into, you know, another 10 or 15 or $20,000 a month. And like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't into, alcohol, drugs, um, it was material things. I was addicted, you know, boy, if I wanted, uh, if I wanted a new car, I went out and bought it. Nothing stopped me. Um, I had an open checkbook. And eventually, uh, I was promoted to uh, general manager of the company. So I was also in charge of the financial performance of the company in addition to creating the financial performance of the company. And I was paid a bonus based on the financial performance of the company. So it, uh, it was kind of a two -ed double edged sword. Um, everybody loved me. I mean, boy, I wish all of our employees could be like Barry. When we asked Barry for a project to be completed he, he gets it to us immediately and it, it you know it, the content is great and, and it looks great and that's one of the red flags i think we're going to talk about eventually here um you know there's a, a bunch of red flags that pop up um, if you're a business owner and you think that you're being taken advantage of by one of your employees you know there's a few red flags that that pop up and we'll talk about those, I, I guess. And uh, yep. I, I think they're important because um, I, I showed a lot of red flags. You know, I, I my my general ledger, my accounts balanced to the penny. Hmm. And boy, I thought, you know, any 
question that I can take away or, or any question about my integrity that I can eliminate is going to help keep the crime covered up. You know, uh, Barry, if, if I could interrupt for, for just a sure. second on um, uh, a couple of points that you made, and, and we'll get back to the story, is um, so th there's two things that, that so far that, that sh strike a chord with me. One, financial pressures. And, you know, you, you said you, you never, you weren't born a criminal. You didn't think you would be, be one, but the financial pressures push you in a direction where, you know, you took advantage of a situation that um, presented itself to you. The question I have for you is that trust. I mean, I, I hear that over and over in what you're saying in terms of gaining people's trust, right? Can you talk a little bit about what you did? Um, like, are there some, some things that you did to be like, you mentioned being very good in the presentation and having the numbers pretty lined up, but it also sounded like people liked you. And were you actively doing things to earn trust and avoid answering any questions? I, I believe that I'm a very likable person and I will go out of my way to find common ground with you. Um, and obviously I did that to the point, to a detrimental point. Mm. And my victims, I mean, I, I, I don't keep in contact with my victims, but they will tell you, boy, we, we, you know, he had a direct interest in my, in my life. And, you know, my boss uh, at the company in Cleveland, he was just a, a heck of a nice guy. And, um, you know, how, you know, I, I'd be concerned and I genuinely, genuinely was concerned, you know, about his, his family, his mother was sick and um, my family helped his mother get into a nursing home in Toledo. And I, I, you know, I would always, you know, if like the auditors would come in and I would, you know, how's your, how's your wife doing? How's, you know, how's your baby? And I, I, I'm not, I, I don't feel I'm a superficial person, but because I was committing a crime and trying to keep it covered up, I would do anything I could to help my situation. Um, if you understand what I'm saying. Sure. No, no, I, I definitely understand that. And, um, uh, Sarah, do you have anything to add to that or any questions on anything Barry's said so far, or um, should we let him proceed with his, uh, uh, with the rest of his story? One of the things actually we, we wanted to ask you was what specifically, or how did you go about giving yourself um, or taking money out of the company? If you can be as explicit as you can. I, I did it a couple ways. Um, the first, my first crime, I wrote checks directly to myself. The checks were not kept in a secure place. I had access to the checks. Uh, I was a pretty good um, forger. I could forge my boss's name, but I would also wait until my boss was getting ready to walk out the door. 
and I'd walk up to him with a, you know, three or four blank checks and I'd say, hey, John, uh, I know you're in a rush, but I got to have these four checks signed. Just trust me. Um, they're, they're for legitimate purchases. And if, if you could sign these four blank checks, I'd appreciate it. And no problem. You know, he trusted me. He didn't have any reason not to trust me. Mm. And he would, he would sign the three or four checks, blank checks, and that would be it. Uh, the other way was through payroll. We used a third-party payroll service. Uh, I don't want to name names, but it was a nationally known company. And one of the first things I did was double my salary. Hmm. Uh, nobody asked to, the auditors included, nor my boss would ask to look at the payroll, the salary payroll ledger ever, uh, you know, and that's one of the things I talk to try and try and teach business owners is it's okay to trust somebody, but verify what they're telling you. Not, not a one time in four years was I asked, you know, show me the, show me the payroll ledger, show me the backup for these payroll checks. You, you know, that's, that's an interesting point, Barry, um, about that. Cause you know, I, I think about our own business and things sort of, going out of funk and and you know money being allocated in different places and things like that it, it's just it's interesting to me that you just earned that kind of trust what that people weren't even looking further were, were the companies that you took money from were they flourishing at the times that um you were there is that part of the problem was that because the company was making money and everyone was making money, they decided not to look further into it. I think, I think two things. First of all, they were making money. Uh, it, they were both in, in profitable, profitable positions, but they were also each, each instance or each crime, the company I worked for was owned by a, I don't know if you call it a conglomerate, but the, the corporate office, owned 10 or you know five or six or seven or 10 similar size companies mm -hmm. so uh my the president of my company was not really the president of the corporation so he was he was my boss but i also kind of reported to the financial person at the corporate office so it wasn't like they were small ma you know monpoc companies sure. they were small but I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that they were profitable. And yep. when things are going good, uh, when the economy's good and, and business is up, you have a tendency to, you know, let things go. Sure, sure. So, Barry, if the company is doing really well and your expenses kind of remain the same, you're, you're going to increase your... Um, take or or you're going to take more because the company is doing well, but you, isn't it true that you would have to kind of keep it at the same level or more? So you're you're going to end up taking more if the company is doing really well. If the company is doing less, you're still going to take the same amount. Would that be a fair assumption or comment? I, I think the I think in a lot of situations, it, it, to me, it really didn't matter. Um, I, I took what I needed or what I thought I needed. So, you know, if I needed, it was, you know, like 
once a week, like $5,000. If the company would have been doing bad, so you're asking me if the company would have been doing poorly, would that have affected my take? Is yeah. that correct? Yes. Uh, I don't know. I think it may have had an impact, but it's all about greed. I think it's all about feeding that addiction. And uh, um, you always, I, I hear a lot of people, a lot of perpetrators say, well, I just, I just, I, I just borrowed it. I'm going to pay it back. I'm going to pay it back uh, uh, another $5,000 and I'll, I'll pay it back. And it never gets paid back. And I think the same mentality goes with, I know things are down right now, but they're going to turn around. So I'll help myself. Um, I, I guess I, in my situation, I kind of separated the two. Sure. If, if you follow what I'm saying. So, so it almost sounds like, um, uh, to follow up on uh, Sarah's question, like it, regardless of whether the uh, company was doing as well as it was or not that well, your drive would have led to finding a way to take the money that you need almost is what you're saying, right? I, I disconnected the two. Yeah, I, yeah. correct. I mean, you're, it, I think if you, if you, take a poll out of 10 perpetrators or 20 perpetrators, 19 out of 20 would say it's an addiction. You can't stop. Once you start, you can't stop. Sure. Sure. Well, that's, that's my that, opinion. That, that, that's interesting. Um, so I, I guess getting back to the second um, company where uh, you, you did this. Uh, so what, what ended up happening where uh, you got caught and uh, obviously got convicted for a second time? Well, in, uh, in the spring of uh, 2006, now this had been going on for four years and it amounted to a little over a million dollars. The internet was just coming online and there was an article out there about the first crime I committed and somebody mailed that to my boss. Wow. So I was put on administrative you know, paid leave and they immediately sent their own people in to audit. And uh, I subsequently hired an attorney because I knew what was coming. And just, you know, it was matter, just a matter of a couple of weeks. And I, uh, my boss called me. Uh, it was, I don't, it, it was in the, maybe a couple of weeks after this had happened. And one of the points I want to bring, bring across today is the importance of Hiring a, hiring a professional company to investigate. If, if you're a business owner and you feel that you've been victimized, hmm. it's important that you do it professionally, get your documents together and, and get everything together from a professional standpoint, because that was not done in either situation. Uh, the, the second crime, after I hired my attorney, my attorney told me, you know, probably not a good idea to talk to anybody about this. And if you get a call from the company, contact me. Because um, we weren't so sure that they were going to press charges at, at that point. And uh, sure enough, a couple of weeks after I was let go, my boss called me on the phone and said, we'd like you to come downtown and talk to us about going back to work. 
Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not stupid. And I knew they knew what was going on. And uh, I went downtown and they had me in a room with their attorney and they started questioning me and it just it just didn't go well at all. And my attorney finally showed up and got me out of there. And I'm walking, we're walking down the hallway, my attorney and I, and toward the elevator. My boss walks out of the, the office that we were in and yells down the hallway, by the way, you're fired. And this is down a, a, you know, in an office building down the hallway, maybe 50 or 100 feet. And I'm thinking, you know, my, my attorney says, we, we figured that already. But it was just, it was just, it could have been handled a lot better than it was. And I think uh, it, I, I think a professional firm would have gone one step further. Sure. So I was, um, the crime was discovered in 2006 and uh, I didn't get prosecuted for two years till the beginning of 2008, um, maybe a year and a half. Uh, I don't know what the delay was. I'm sure a professional firm would have pushed it along a little faster than what it was pushed along. Um, but I was, you know, I was with my family and I decided to, to write a book and uh, speak around the country about embezzlement and how to protect yourself. At that point, I think I had learned my lesson even before I went into to prison. But uh, I was looking at uh, 60 to 66 months, this second crime, and it wouldn't have been a boot camp. Um, it would have been in a, uh, a, a real prison. And that's, I ended up getting 63 months and uh, I 63 months of cell of uh, soul searching, and you know I was released in January 2013, and with nothing. I mean, my wife divorced me, my kids wouldn't talk to me, and uh, you know I had nothing. My best friend and his wife had to buy my clothes. I didn't even have the clothes on my back, and I've in, in you know in, in eight years, seven years, I've I've worked my way back to a position a respectable position i i know what my limits are i have financial pressures but i pay that you know i pay my financial obligations you know every two weeks out of my paycheck and i live within my means i'm remarried i'm afraid of my wife she'll keep me in line um, but i think you know i think it's important for business owners to understand that how prevalent this problem is. You know, when I when I first was convicted, I thought, boy, nobody embezzles money. Nobody does it. And you know, the research I've done and Sarah will tell you that it, it's it's everywhere. Uh, I live I live outside of Fort Wayne, Indiana, and at least once a week there's an article in the newspaper about somebody getting victimized that was actually going to be one of my questions is is and you know we'll discuss more about prevention and detection in uh part two uh but this was a long time ago 
um, where information was not that readily available. You didn't hear about these things as, you know, social media and the news, the internet, all that kind of stuff, right? So it sounds like you believe it's still happening today uh, somewhat frequently. And so I, would that be accurate? I, I think it's happening more frequently today. Uh, I think that people live beyond their means. I think people live at the edge of their credit cards. I think people create their own financial pressure. And, you know, they run into situations where they feel the need to, to steal. I, I, I work for a company now in Fort Wayne. We do, uh, we're a commercial construction company. And I got an invitation. I do all of our estimating. I work in the field and I do all of our estimating, but I was doing an estimate a couple of weeks ago and I was uh, from a company that I'd never heard of out of Pittsburgh. And uh, I, I kind of wanted to find a little bit about out about the company. And I, I Googled the company uh, and it came up um, X construction company embezzlement. I said, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, this this construction company out of Pittsburgh was just victimized to the tune of $8.9 million by their accounting manager. Wow. And she, I think it was over a six or seven year period, stole, you know, just about bankrupted them. It's everywhere. I, you know, I wasn't thinking about the consequences when I was stealing money. I was thinking about the satisfaction that I would get with that next four or five thousand dollars. Sure. No, I, I can definitely I can definitely see that. And, um, you know, again, it, it's interesting about the fact that you think uh, that's actually more prevalent today. Uh, Sarah, I'd actually toss that question to you as well. What, what, what are your thoughts on what you're seeing based on what you're seeing and what you know as far as um, if this kind of uh, thing is still happening today? Farhad, that is a great question. I know that Barry spoke about how he perpetrated his fraud years ago, and is that still happening today? I, I believe and I've seen that companies still remain vulnerable. Uh, the types of fraud remain the same very much along uh, the lines of what Barry did in his two companies that he was with. Complacency, complacency is what remained, right? Um, like he mentioned, he was the one who received the bank statement. Yep. He was the one who dealt with the external auditors. And the thing with that is who in, who in the times now actually looks at the bank statements? Do you as a company owner, take the time to see what is on your statement? Do you as a company owner uh, look to or deal with the external auditors or any auditors, including your internal auditors? And the answer to that is a simple no. They place people in very, um, you know, positions, entrusted positions, and they have managers that they've vetted or they think they've vetted in order to handle these things. And we see over and over again that it, that is not the case. Mm -hmm. The one thing that has changed between what when Barry actually did what he did to now is technology. Technology has given an edge to fraudsters. And that's how I see it. And that's how I think things are going and things are going in that direction. 
Interesting. Um, well, I'll tell you, this is definitely one of the more fascinating stories that I've heard directly from a person who committed the crime. But it's also a nightmare scenario in, in many ways. Um, so we're going to break it off here. Uh, please join us for the next episode where Sarah and Barry will talk about preventing and detecting this type of situation from happening to you. So thank you uh, for joining us for part one. Part two will be published in a couple of weeks. Don't miss it. And for your information, we are going to put Sarah and Barry's company information in the description of the podcast. You can also reach out to us if you'd like to get connected. And obviously, please send your comments and questions to info at integrisintel.com. Till next time. Don't forget to follow us. We are on LinkedIn and Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube.